Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou au horihori. Hei hōtaka e pānaki te pūtaio, te taio, mei te kaupapa o te ora. You're with Our Changing World on RNZ National, and now we stay in Australia. You will have heard a lot of news this year about the plight of the Great Barrier Reef. Climate change and a strong El Nino season have caused the bleaching of almost a quarter of its coral. Many scientists believe that stretches of the reef will not be able to recover. But recently scientists found that some of the algae that live within corals are surprisingly resilient to rising temperatures and even ocean acidification. I met with Madeleine van Oppen at the Australian Institute of Marine Science to find out about the controversial idea of assisted evolution and how her team is working to identify corals from the Great Barrier Reef that might just cope with climate change. A coral is basically an animal. It's related to an anemone, but it actually consists of a lot of different modules. It's a colony of identical units, and each of them is basically a tiny anemone. But then they also have single-celled algae inside their cells, and they depend on these algae for food. So they're, in a way, they're both animals and plants. In addition to that, they also associate, like all organisms, with a wide range of bacteria and fungi and other microbial organisms that are critical to their health and functioning. At the reef, they, they build an external skeleton. They deposit that skeleton as they grow. They're really the reef engineers. They form the three-dimensional structures of the reef, and that provides habitat, a home to a wide diversity of other reef organisms, fish and snails and crabs and so on. So they're really the foundation species of coral reefs. Now what we've seen this season in the Great Barrier Reef was widespread and severe bleaching. So we've gone through a very um, extreme El Nino event over the past two years, 2015-2016, and in many uh, places around the world, including the Great Barrier Reef, we saw unusually high summer temperatures, particularly so in the northern section of the Great Barrier Reef. There was extensive bleaching. One large-scale survey that, that was done showed that there was some level of bleaching in 93% of the reefs that were surveyed, but that meant that some reefs were heavily bleached and other reefs had only a tiny bit of bleaching. And estimates at the moment uh, are that on average there's about uh, 25 or so percent coral mortality on average between the northern and the central Great Barrier Reef, but most of the mortality has occurred in the northern section of the reef. Meaning that it's irreversible, that that patch of coral will not... Yeah, so that will have to recover from regrowth from surviving corals or new larvae that that recruit into the reef and then grow into into new coral colonies. What happens when a bleaching occurs? What happens on that level of that colony of organisms? Mm -hmm. So as I mentioned earlier, corals live in symbiosis, we call it. They have inside their their own cells, they harbor these single-celled algae called zooxanthellae. And so the algae use the sunlight to make sugars and other foods, and they give a lot of those foods to the corals. 
In the process of photosynthesizing, those algae also produce dangerous chemicals. You know, we call them reactive oxygen species. And those chemicals, if they occur in large abundances, they damage the cells, and the cells of the algae themselves and also the cells of the corals because these chemicals leak into the, the coral tissues as well. When the temperatures rise, and usually that coincides with high light levels because it happens when the waters are very still in summer, there's a lot of light in it, energy sort of hitting these algae, and they can't cope with all that energy. And the heat also damages their cellular structure and their photosystem. So more of more of these um, dangerous chemicals, these reactive oxygen species, are being produced. And the system just cannot deal with it. So the coral then sort of gets rid of these algae. You know, they either kick them out or they kill them inside their tissues. But if these bleaching conditions persist, then the coral will also die because they won't get enough food because they rely so heavily on, on the, the sugars that the algae make from sunlight to survive for their, for their nutrition, basically. Your work is focusing on what you describe as assisted evolution. If this process were happening at a slower rate, I guess coral might have a chance to actually adapt. But you're trying to speed that up somehow. Yes, that's correct. There are a few observations, sort of a the small number of locations where it seems that corals have adapted or acclimatized to these sort of unusually high temperature events. So in those instances, what we see is that over successive bleaching events, maybe you know, 10 years apart or so, there is uh, more tolerance in the later event than there was in the earlier event. So, so there's some level of selection has occurred. But at the same time, we've seen that over the past decades, we've lost about 40% of coral cover worldwide. So there is a capacity to, in corals to adapt or acclimatize, but it's not sufficient generally to deal with this rapid pace of, of climate change, warming and ocean acidification and all the other assaults that coral reefs are experiencing. So in my work, uh, what we are trying to do is to basically use what we've learned about the mechanisms that corals have to cope with environmental change and accelerate these processes in the laboratory and eventually in the field to try and develop coral stock that is more climate resilient. How do you go about that? You obviously have to find it in the wild yes. somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, we basically do exactly the same as people do in commercially important species, crops and livestock and in forestry and so on. So we, we use a number of approaches, or we're actually trialing a number of approaches. One is selective breeding, of course. And we also try to modify the microbial communities that corals associate with. So one, those um, symbiotic algae that live inside their cells, because we know they, are, they play an important role in the temperature tolerance of the corals. We are also um, exploring, whether the, exploring whether the microbial communities and fungal communities can be manipulated and whether that is a way to perhaps increase the coral climate resilience. People do that, for example, in rice and other plant species successfully to enhance drought resistance, temperature resistance and so on. But it's a more complex organism on many levels because it's a symbiosis, so you're dealing with yes, more than just a plant. Yes, because it has this endosymbiosis, exactly right. But plants have very complicated symbioses as well. We can grow these algal symbionts in the laboratory, and we're doing so, and we're evolving these algae in the lab so we can speed up that process of evolution and we can direct the evolution because we can, uh, for example, evolve them under temperature stress or under you know, acidified ocean stress and so on. So when you say speeding up that process, it would be like 
you put them in, say, warmer temperatures and see yes. the ones that survive are obviously Exactly right. So, so we, we gradually increase the temperature, and then at every temperature we, we pick the cells that grow best and we, we put them at a, at a next higher temperature. It's called a ratchet design. So each ratchet sort of you increase the temperature. In the lab, we can also speed up um, cell division rates, the growth rates of these algae, so we can accelerate that process. We're also playing around a little bit with mutagenesis. So every time a cell duplicates itself, there are um, random mutations that occur, little errors that the enzymes make when they copy the DNA and they don't repair them. And by chance, some of those might be beneficial on the um, predicted future ocean conditions. So we're simulating that in the laboratory. So to accelerate that, one thing we can do is um, accelerate the growth rate of the algae, or we can increase the mutation rates. And we can do that by exposing them to um, mutagenic chemicals or UV radiation and so on. And again, that's something that is commonly done in other in, algae. Yeah. In other. So yeah. are you working mostly on the algae, or is there a way of trying to work on the combined organism? We work on the algae as well as the coral host animal. So the selective breeding work is mostly done based on the genetic characteristics and also other traits, the phenotypes as we call it, of the coral host animal, not specifically the, the algae. And we can combine approaches eventually. Are there any promising leads in that? I mean, are you optimistic that <clears throat> There yeah. is a way of assisting yeah. this evolution. <laughs> I am optimistic because it's worked in most organisms where people have tried this. It won't work for all species, but it will work at least for some of them. The question is, of course, the scale at which we will be able to do this in terms of numbers of species and also spatial scale of the reef. We have some very promising leads, especially in uh, the evolution of the algae in the laboratory. We've had some really neat successes there. We've managed to create uh, hybrids so we can cross different coral species and we're now exploring whether there's any benefits to the organisms. Because when you cross two different species, you instantaneously combine new gene combinations. And so we, we do that and then we just let sort of selection pick the the, the phenotypes and the genotypes that perform best on the predicted future ocean conditions. And again, you know, it's very early days there, but you know, there might be some interesting results. And I guess for marine organisms that will be affected by both temperature and ocean acidification, there isn't really any other way left because both these things will continue to change for you know, centuries to come, exactly even right. in the best-case scenario, yes. even if we take action. Even if we uh, stopped all greenhouse gas emissions today, we would still see continuing climate change. You know, unless we can um, actually take greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere, we've committed already to long-term continuing climate change. If you were to find something that works, you'd then have to somehow bring that or return that particular organism back to the reef. Have you ever thought about yeah. sort of the replanting process of it? Yes, we are, we are definitely thinking about that. And also we've started to talk to the uh, coral reef managers um, here in Australia and overseas and the policy makers and the general public because there's yeah, a little, sometimes a little bit of resistance because people say, oh, you're playing God, are you making a Frankenstein coral? And so you need to explain to people what it is we are doing and also what the risks are potentially in actually implementing this in the field. 
Yeah, that still requires quite a bit of development. It requires a bit of uh, modeling. You know, if we wanted to do a field trial, say, five years from now, where, what would be a safe location to do this at? In the end, it's not us scientists who will decide whether it will be implemented, but we can advise the policymakers and, and the coral reef managers. If you find a promising lead and you understand the molecular mechanisms in it, how far would you go in considering true genetic modification? Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> again, there's a lot of resistance to genetic modification. I think it's often due to people not fully understanding what you're actually doing. Some of the, the novel genetic modification tools can make actually very small changes in the genomes of organisms. So by gene editing an organism, it's a much smaller change than, for example, creating an interspecific hybrid where I combine two completely divergent genomes and, and change the whole genomic makeup of, of the resulting hybrid organisms. I think definitely in terms of developing the tools, I think we should do so. Whether we, it would be implemented is another question, of course, but um, I think we should definitely develop the tools. And that was Madeleine van Oppen at the Australian Institute of Marine Science at Melbourne University. Thanks for listening to this Our Changing World podcast. And you can find more stories on our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Ka kite anō. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.